0: Hi, I'm Jen Storer, and you're listening to the Girl and Duck podcast creative writing, creative life. All right, here we are on the Girl and Duck podcast and maybe YouTube. Um, And this is our first interview for 2024. And I am so excited to be kicking off with Nerida McMullen, especially because I love Nerida, she's gorgeous. But also because we had a convoluted few months of of trying to get this interview organised. So I think the stars have lined up really beautifully for us to be kicking off 2024 uh, together with this uh, first In Conversation. So I'll quickly read um, Nerida's lovely bio and then we'll jump in. Nerida McMullen loves animals, Australian history and true stories. An author of 11 books for children, She's such the quiet achiever, I've got to say. That's not in the bio, by the way. (laughs) An author of 11 books for children, Nerida is also an award-winning short story writer and poet. Her latest middle-grade fiction novel, Evie and Rhino, was an honour book in the 2023 CBCA Book of the Year in the Young Readers category and was winner of the 2023 Speech Pathology of Australia Book of the Year in the same category. Her latest picture book, published by Walker Books Australia in 2023, is called Shearer and is the true story of leg- legendary Shearer Jack Howe. Nerida loves footy, family, walking her dog and meeting other people's dogs. <laughs> Nerida McMullen, welcome to the Beyond Duck podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much for having
0: me. We're thrilled, thrilled to have you. And I've got to say, for those of you who are watching visually, Narrator's background is gorgeous. It's just beautiful. I love the way you put it all together. So It's a
1: little COVID wallpapering there. <laughs> right. <Yeah.
0: laughs> I've got a COVID letterbox. Um, I went mad and painted the letterbox all, you know, with all characters all over it during COVID, but we all did strange stuff. But that looks great. I love the way you've got that all set up. And we will talk a lot about all these books that you've done. Sure. Nerida, first of all, though, I loved your website, and I loved reading about your childhood. Um, and and it's like all the pieces of the puzzle coming together with the type of childhood that you had, and now the type of writing that you do. It's just so. It's just such a complete world. So, can you explain to our listeners, or talk to our listeners a little bit about your childhood because it is exceptional.
1: Well, isn't it funny? You know, when you're growing up, uh, you don't realise that you're experiencing anything exceptional. You just think it's normal. But obviously I know now that it was special. And, um, you know, I dream about it all the time and I really do connect strongly um, with my writing to it. I I didn't probably for the first, I'm going to say the first eight or nine years that I was writing, and, and I'll explain why a little bit later, but I grew up on a farm um, on Port Ferry Road just out of Hamilton. And um, my mother, well, actually my whole family love animals, including both sets of grandparents, but my mother in particular, and she used to have, I just grew up with the menagerie of them. We had um, an aviary, we had lots of chickens and ducks, and she sort of had all, all sorts of different species of, of um, chickens, like silkies and um, different types of um Yeah, God, she just loved her poultry. So that was my job, my job to look after the girls. And I used to collect the eggs every night and um, call them in every night. Um, I only ever forgot once in my childhood and we had a fox. Oh, no. I know. So that was a disaster, no more chickens. But I I do love chickens. I find them very calming and I always wanted to take one inside the house, obviously, (laughs) like, you know, we had cats and dogs and so forth. Um, so you know, we had ferrets, I had lots of horses and ponies. My grandfather had stables, he um was into equestrian, but he also raced horses and he bred them. So I grew up um, you know, watching foals being woken in the middle of the night, and watching foals being born. It's and
0: just that's, extraordinary. It's pretty it beautiful. Yeah. And so your grandfather his, his horse uh, um, started, was that close by to your farm? or Yeah, I used to ride yeah. my
1: bike over there. Oh, okay, so
0: I inter- all
1: Yeah, or my pony. And I stayed there a lot, um, particularly if a foal was, you know, close to her due date, I'd be staying there. And, um, you know, sometimes he had 12 brood mares and some of them would foal sequentially because spring's foaling time. So, yeah, I'd be around there a lot at that time of year. And then those um, foals would grow up as yearlings into two-year-olds and they'd all be broken in together. So I was just always hanging out in the stables, yeah.
0: Wow. And so were you involved in that? So obviously you were a good rider. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: Well, yeah, look, I think I'm accomplished. I can hang on. (laughs) Um, You know, I can ride. Yeah. Um, But, you know, we had all sorts of shenanigans on our ponies. My grandfather set up jumps all throughout um, his property, um, so we didn't have to open gates and so forth. Um, I had a lot of cousins, yeah, so we we all had horses. But, of course, I wanted to handle the thoroughbreds, so I had a couple of challenging times there because, you know, they're big horses. Oh, they're terrifying. Yeah, and some of them can, the racehorses can be a bit flighty. So, yeah, I had pretty amazing experiences. My grandfather was, um, today you'd call him a horse whisperer. Yeah, like yeah. he his touch with horses was yeah, it was very special to watch it was something to behold yeah and wow. the way horses responded to him he had a um a, he had a couple of mares that were um alpha mares I don't know whether you've heard of that terminology but they're they're always very bossy they often stand on you and you know bump you a bit and right. they're the boss yeah yeah so I had an alpha mare as it was probably my third pony because we always started off on Shetlands. And I had this alpha mare called Honey. Oh my God, we didn't get on. Was <laughs> so awful to me. I just thought. <laughs> but the thing with alpha mares is that they take um, a couple of years to bond. Yeah. So once I bonded with her, it was just it was just love. Oh, and she wow. was very mothering and maternal. That's why what I mean by an alpha mare—they run the show. So wow. he had these really intense relationships as well with with horses. So. I was very lucky it's incredible. Yeah, it was really good.
0: So Nara, did you then as an you know as a teenager did you go to boarding school? No
1: I didn't. I managed to dodge that. I was meant to go to
0: <laughs> <Congo>. <laughs> Yeah, look, I so I'll just interrupt you here. Those of you who are listening, Port Ferry, which is the region where, where Nerida is from, is in Victoria on the coast and it's very, very, from what I know, what I think, it's pretty wild and cold and yeah. wet and, yeah, okay, so let's just set the scene a little bit for those who don't know. That's yeah.
1: right. And, look, our farm was but in, that, in mm. between Port Ferry and Hamilton and I went to a, a fantastic school in Hamilton. Okay, so I didn't want to leave my animals.
0: No, well, that was the feeling that I got. Yeah, and I yeah. had a lot of
1: cats too. We yeah. Like, um, just normal moggies, but we had Siamese. My mother bred Siamese cats.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. is was heaven. Yeah, well, it was. It really was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you went to high school in, in Hamilton and then, which is really interesting um, in your bio, then you went off and studied science.
1: I know. It was a very strange decision.
0: But what well, was it strange or was it sort of grounded? Or, well, look, um, I think
1: um, my father, um, the grandfather in in Evie and Rhino, is is sort of a mixture of all my grandparents and my father. So my there's father- such an
0: authenticity in Evie and Rhino. Can I just butt in there? It's, it it just feels like you were there. You know, like it's fiction, but it's just got such a strong voice and such a strong sense of place. And and just such a deep authenticity. And that was my childhood. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: And my father has always had this, you know, um fascination and wonder with nature. And we were always bushwalking or beachcombing, doing things together. And he'd stop and, you know, point out a caterpillar or a, that's that's who he was. Like he saw things in detail. So as a writer, that's how you gotta see things, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. So um you know, he had that real sense of wonder, and I guess that was kind of scientific. Mm. So I really was into looking at things. I had bug catches and, you know, little aquariums and all that sort of stuff growing up. But I actually did um, a lot of track and field when I was at school, and I was a state champion, and I did I ran at a national level. God. So I went to university to be professionally coached. Yeah. Okay. And I decided on science just purely because I found it interesting, but I, I did food science. Because yeah. I think um, dietetics and nutrition related to sport. To sport.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I never ever thought I could be a writer. I mean, who who does unless you're born into a literature? Yeah,
0: yeah. So was that was that even on your radar, or was that just not at all? Look, I
1: got good marks for English, but back on the farm, you know, people were farmers, they were teachers, nurses. Nobody. You know I didn't know any writers. I didn't know any. You know, Did I'd you have a
0: was that were there a lot of books
1: in the house? Look, not on my mother's side, um, the horsey side. Um my grandfather was actually he actually illiterate and he didn't learn to write, read and write till much later in life. He was a drover. Mm-hmm. And they were sort of the farming type of farming people that worked seven days a week. Mm. So they didn't mm-hmm. have time for that's my mother's story. She said, they didn't, we didn't have time yeah. to read, but they were Irish and I think there was a lot of oral history. Yep. Like they were the best, they still are the best storytellers.
0: Yes, <laughs> because in your bio you talk about how you would sit around on an upturned feed b- pail <laughs> bucket and, yeah. um, and tell stories.
1: That's right. But my father's side, they were big readers and um, I'm not saying I was forced, but I used to, read a lot of poetry, bush poetry when I was younger and recite for my grandmother. You know, it was sort of like a trick pony there. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: But, um, so I was exposed to a lot of poetry when I was younger and, you know, I read all the Enid Blinton Nancy Drew, all those books, very big fan of Trixie Belden. And then sort of after that there wasn't much else in Australia, was there, with mm. our age group? So, yeah. you know, I read my first Wilbur Smith at 12.
0: Oh, right, yeah. My yeah. father was a big Wilbur, Wilbur Smith. Kid yeah wow that's a blast from the past isn't it i yeah. I, would, I would i think a lot of um writers and readers go through a Will smith's phase i yeah, don't know i did <laughs> yeah the adventure the history the adventure in the history yeah the romance and skipping they skip along yeah 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 right yeah. Hmm.
1: so dad's side we're definitely readers and dad is still a voracious reader in fact i feel a bit guilty but dad's now retired and Sometimes when I'm doing research, I'll ask him, can you read this and just tell me what it's about?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and yep. he's,
1: he's a fantastic support to me because. Oh,
0: that's so brilliant. Yeah, and it's wow. just, you
1: know, a way for us to stay connected too.
0: Yeah. yeah I'm
1: sorry, that's my dog door.
0: Oh, that's all right. <laughs> yeah. We expect that with you.
1: <laughs> yeah, correct. Correct.
0: Yeah! Wow. Maybe a horse will stick its head in at some point.
1: <laughs> well, you know, see, I was a big fan of Black Beauty, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and see, that was written from the point of view of the horse.
0: Yeah, Yep. which is right. Mm. So this is what comes in with with um, Evie and Rhino. Yeah. Well, I thought all
1: animals could communicate. Beautiful. Okay, yeah. they weren't using words, but it's that yeah, reading of the body language. Yeah, and you know that eye contact you make yeah, yeah totally
0: no totally so mm-hmm. let's 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 pull back a bit so um so you did then start you had a career in, yeah in the food sciences I sciences. did can you tell us a little about that
1: well my first job was with Bonlac Foods in Colac um so they were a dairy manufacturing company and I worked in cheese mm-hmm. and
0: <laughs> that was I don't know first. why that's funny but I <laughs> Well, you know, I really like
1: cows. Like yep. I felt it was quite a pure industry to be in. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was pretty tough um, because you've sort of got to make hay while the sun shines. When your cows are milking, you've got to make as much cheese as you can. Mm-hmm. And we used to work nine-day fortnight. So I think it was a tough job. But um, I do love cheese. But after that I wanted to change. So I worked for Campbell Soup Company mm-hmm. in flavour development and I did a lot of recipe development for soups and so forth and i worked for them in america and i went to the uk and worked for them over there and then when i came back i decided i wanted to go back into the dairy industry and that's that's what i did i worked for valentine foods in melbourne for nearly well i worked for them full time for 12 years and then i i did part time and i cuz i loved being a mum and i loved being home and i started to write um technical reports right all Australian companies are allowed to claim 50% of um tax on their research and development. So I started writing te- these long, they were very wordy, sort of boring, um passive uh writing, third person, um, these reports to support their research. And so they were for KPMG and Price Waterhouse. And I didn't think anyone read them. So one day I decided to make one funny because
0: yeah.
1: working in research can be quite funny. And I was a bit of an accident. Like I used to, whoops, you know, spill a little bit too much culture into a vat of milk and because that's how um cracker barrel cheese was invented. A um yeah, a cheesemaker down there tripped pouring the culture into the vat and put double the amount that he should have. So that's why it ended up being a very strong and robust tasting cheese. That's cracker barrel.
0: Oh God. That is lots of stories like that. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. So I
1: was a little bit like that. And I used to work very quickly and then I'd forget how much of something I'd added and then I'd have to so I'd have a, you know, where I want to be, but then I had to work backwards to find out how I got there. <laughs>
0: So I wrote this. Story. I've worked with designers like that, by the yeah. way, in publishing. It's like, how did, you, how did you do that spread? And they go, oh, "I don't know. I, I've forgotten." I know, isn't it <laughs>
1: terrible. Yeah. You get carried away. You get excited, and yeah, exactly. That happens with writing too. Like there's lots of parallels between being a research scientist and and writing. So I made this report into a faulty towers kind of report, and it, as it turned out, people did read those reports. Yeah, and my boss at the time said. Why don't you write fiction? And I said, you know, I'm thinking about it because, you know, after you have a child, you really do feel that you can take on the world. (laughs) So you, yeah, and I had this huge creative sort of surge, and I started writing out farm stories, like all the funny things that had happened to me as a child. And my stepsons absolutely loved that, and that's how that's how I started writing.
0: Okay, Hmm. so it was a really just a really beautiful transition it's really interesting to hear how that worked and it just and and also it sounds like you didn't have any hard and fast goal at that point you were just exploring yep look I decided to enter some competitions yeah
1: and I I won a short story prize um in the Banjo Patterson Literary Awards Mm -hmm. and I also wrote poetry as well um
0: so what, year, what years are we talking about now? Yeah, how, how long ago? Um, I'm trying to
1: look. Where? Uh, 2013. Oh, look, it was about 2008, I think, okay. that I was writing yes. short stories and doing all of that. And then um, uh, my husband became very sick and um, I decided I wanted to write a picture book, just uh-huh. just something that was uplifting for all family members during yeah. this time, like Ian obviously got better and he's very healthy now. Um, So I wrote about a family legend that my father had made up, but I think his father may have made it up and his father father. Right. So they're Scottish.
0: Yeah.
1: They were Scottish um, settlers here and they had a ponky doodle in their house. A what? A ponky doodle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
1: explain. Okay, Please so explain. Whole, yeah, look, I really think it's based on um, on house brownies.
0: Oh house yes, oh I, I knew I knew that word. Yeah, yes. That's right. Yes.
1: So, so they called him Ponky Doodle, and he was this little creature that um, you know lived in the roof space, basically. So as a child, if I was ever scared of possums, you know, jumping on the roof or um, tree branches, you know. Tapping against the house—it's only ponky doodle, so it's nothing to be scared of. Okay. So I self-published that. I self-published oh, ponky doodle.
0: I can see that yeah. in the background there. Yeah, and yeah. it's pretty horrible. Oh, but, ponky uh, doodle's dreadful. Can, can, can you hold it up for us, just so we can see the cover? Because this is fantastic. You know, I love this sort of—you know—you just went in and did it. Ponky I went doodle. in and did it. just hold so it up that, a bit higher. We can't see the yellow. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Who did the illustrations? Um, Aaron Pocock. So it's I did that through little fabulous. steps, which is
1: new frontier. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's really—I mean—you learn as you go, don't you? Yeah. Really, not what I had in mind, but I—I I just went with.
0: It's still a great illustration, yeah, look, and and the it's whole it's a family finish. love it. Yeah, yeah. The whole family love it, but um, that must have been a pretty wild experience for you, though. Like writing, self-publishing, like oh man.
1: Yeah, I'd never do that again. <laughs> I'd never do that again. However. Um, so after that, I was sort of looking for little independence in Melbourne. I thought that might be the way to go. And I was writing sort of sports stories because of the kids. Yep. And at Melbourne Grammar School, um, the first game of Australian Rules football ever was between Melbourne Grammar School and Scotch College. Yeah. And a guy called Tom Wills wrote the first set of rules. And where I grew up in Hamilton, Tom Wills grew up in the Grampians. And there were all these little connections. So I wrote about Tom
0: Wills. Right. So that's, that's a kick it to me. Okay. This one. yeah. yeah. So, hold it up a bit more. Can you hold it right up? Yep. Yeah. Is that beautiful? Wow. So, I
1: sent Kick It To Me out to a few publishers. The majors didn't go for it, but I had a couple of independents uh, and an independent in Melbourne who, unfortunately, are no longer here. One day he'll loved it because Bernadette, the publisher there, grew up with
0: a Ponky Doodle, like a similar oh, character. Okay. So, that's the Scottish heritage. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so. so- so kick it to me how long did it how long did it take for you to find a publisher for that
1: Look from beginning to end it was about 5 years yeah The illustrator right. um a fellow called Peter Hudson who's who's a fine he's a fine artist fine like artist, his, yeah. I'll sh- I'll show you something like his artwork is absolutely spectacular but we sort of had a bit of trouble pinning him down. That's Tom Wells as a
0: boy. Hold it up a bit higher again, past your face, so we can see. Okay, yeah, is that watercolor, or well, it, or... I think he
1: did a bit with crayons as Crayon, well. Crayon,
0: yeah, mixed media. And there, there's there's Tom Wells as. Oh yeah, they're really powerful. Wow, they're be- beautiful yeah, artwork. Yeah,
1: wow. And and of course, back then, um, look, we that manuscript sat down with um with um the Gujmara uh, Cooperative down in Warrnambool with a couple of elders down there because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we want to do the right thing. Um, and they blessed it and away we went sort of thing. And that's sort of what how journey. I got into publishing. But then after Kick It To Me, I was sort of in the wilderness for a while.
0: Yeah. So how long were you in the wilderness? No, So okay. So when you say you're in the wilderness, obviously by now you had more of a clear vision of what you wanted to do. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I was... I was- really attracted to historical
0: stories and true stories. Okay. But and you wanted to forge some sort of career. I did. Yeah, yeah I
1: did. I'd sort yeah. of gone from it being a hobby with Ponky Doodle to wanting more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You've got a taste for it. <laughs>
1: I've got a taste for it, yeah. And so um the Black Saturday bushfires mm-hmm. happened. And I was listening to a radio station and they interviewed um
0: this Is Fabish. so mm-hmm. that's this one, yeah. That one there, mm-hmm. they're very iconic. Your books, like y- you just sort of see them in the shops, and they I don't know. Even though, even before I knew your body of work, I knew your books, but yeah, right. knew you. Sorry, before I knew you, I yeah. knew your body of work because I had your books are so iconic. Oh, you've, wow. you've always got these illustrations and you've always got these titles that just seem to pop.
1: Well, mm. I. Don't really like this title. Right. Because Fabish is actually the two owners' surnames put together. He was a racehorse. Right. And and just for all the duckies out there, what happened during the Black Saturday bushfires is that the horse trainer, um, when you've got a bushfire bearing down on you, you you are meant to cut all the wires on your fences and open all your gates and and let your livestock livestock run free so that they can find their own way. Mm -hmm. Instinctively, they usually know where to go um and on this property there was a stone there were stone stables so there were 30 odd horses jammed into them <gasps> but fabish and about seven yearlings were just set free and fabish he ran to a place cuz I've looked at all the mapping of where the fires went he took them somewhere safe these seven yearlings followed him wow. and then the next day and the whole place is burnt out blackened wow. you know smoke rising off the ground the next day Fabish led these seven yearlings home in single file, head to tail, um, oh. you know, through the smoke. And Alan, I heard him talking about it on the radio and I just went, wow, that's an amazing story. So I cold called him. And yeah. I this is at Narbathong. I said, I really wanted to come out and meet him and meet Fabish and write a story for children. And he was like, Yeah, come on out.
0: I love how proactive you are. You just you get you get the inspiration and off you go.
1: Well. It's brilliant. I, I find cold calling really hard to do now because whenever you do write a true story, and I've got to say this to all the duckies out there, you've got to get permission.
0: Yes, get- and actually, this is a brilliant conversation because we literally had this same conversation in office hours last this month. Earlier this month, someone's question was around yes, permissions. That. It was around, yeah, 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 it was around writing true stories, and in her case, about a child, but. So this is really interesting. So yes, you've got to get permissions.
1: Yeah. And it's a really tricky thing to do. And you know, I've had lots of chats with people like Corinne Fenton.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: you know, and she's an amazing support to other writers. And you know, I want to know how how do you go about asking that? It's very hard. Yeah. Um, and Walker Books, they want it in writing. Yeah. So it's pretty tough. Yeah. Because some people yeah. want to talk about their stories, some people just want privacy. Yeah. Um, but the lawyers at Walker, lawyers, because we do live in a litigious world, yeah. um, she said, look, what we do is we put in a disclaimer saying that this is an unauthorised biography, you know, if I don't get permission. So basically I, call, I cold call people. I tell them what I do. Quite often I'll send them my previous, you know, picture books so that they can see that I'm legit. And I tell them what I want to write and I ask them if I have their blessing blessing for that project mm-hmm. and that if I get a contract um, and the book is going to come out that I will call them up and read them the text mm-hmm. and I just find out how, how they feel about that. And
0: they're the words wow. for you.
1: That's you beautiful.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I have had some really amazing experiences with descendants of some of the people I've written about.
0: Yeah, yeah. They're
1: really amazing and have become friends with them. I, I remember reading out... Um, the Jackie Howe story to one of the granddaughters. So
0: that's the Shearer book. The
1: Shearer story, yeah. And there was a pause after I'd finished. Yeah, there was a pause. Mm. And she sort of had to rally and and she said, I think that's beautiful and oh, that's everything I've oh. ever wanted. Because oh, yeah. he really is a lost character, that one.
0: He is. I was gobsmacked when <laughs> I read it and then I... I got I called to David I said did you know this and I, and I read out the whole thing at the back about how the blue singlet the bonds you know yeah. it was all because of him and his mum and cutting off the sleeves and yeah. the gun shearer and it's just such a beautiful story and yeah, yeah a forgotten legend and just again part of iconic Australian history mm. that we just didn't even know
1: yeah and look as I sort of you know I love markets and antique places and so forth. So I'll just hold these up. I don't know where you can see them.
0: Yeah. Oh, the shears. The shears these the are, a bit higher again. A bit higher? Yep, yep. How's that? Oh God, they're stamped. Yeah, they're they, stamped. they are. That's got yeah. the manufacturer. Wow. So they're they're what you call hand blades. Can you, I just mean. can't even imagine how hard they worked. Like seriously. Well, he was a real athlete. Oh so, god. And
1: then you know like for Eat My Dust. So this is a box brownie.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the old fashioned yeah. I had one mother. of those. I had yeah. a box brownie as a kid. I, yeah. took it, I took it on a train trip when I was a little kid in primary school. We went on a train trip and um, I wanted a camera, so mum gave me the box brownie. I took all yeah, these like white cool. photos. Gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the they're 60s. little things.
1: Well, you know, I'm, I'm a collector. Yeah.
0: Like, yeah, yeah.
1: I like things like that to help me, you know, just props to sort of touch and hold while I'm writing these stories and imagining that I'm there.
0: You can see the marriage too in you know your that obviously your research research skills are top notch and that would have come through from your science background and then you just yes. brought that that talent and that know how to the writing so it's sort of yeah. like a natural progression that you would be doing all this nonfiction
1: yeah yeah there's strong parallels
0: yeah and I have
1: to admit I'm a real dog with a bone um because I actually I had a Email from um a a young person recently who is writing nonfiction, narrative nonfiction, and he was asking, I don't know where to start the story.
0: Yeah. Actually, I've got that on my thing here. I wanted to ask you about that process. Yeah. Because also we had we had Claire Saxby in the duck pond for a nonfiction class last year, and it was absolutely fascinating. Uh and so I wanted to ask you about how do you decide where to start, but also as i learned from claire too is how do you learn how do you figure out what to leave out you it's know so hard. yeah so yeah. Let's, let's riff on that for a bit
1: okay um well i don't write bios chronologically it's not you know they were born and this sort of happened so i guess they're like I do like reading in that market. So I know there are books out there that are like that. But for children, I think you need to choose the most exciting part of their lives, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. take a snippet mm-hmm. of that information and go as deep as you possibly can on it. So, like, Eat My Dust was a good one. Um, you know, the two girls who drove mm-hmm. across, raced across the Nullivore, like they were such characters.
0: They were amazing. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that one in a, a bit more detail as well. well look, I, I fell in love with these girls, and here, here they are. Here, yeah. illustrated and, by um, Lucia Lucia Meshulio. Yes, and um, yeah. look after she
1: yeah. illustrated it, I could cut quite a few words out because her illustrations said so much. Yeah, but they they did some pretty incredible things. So they they raced across the Nullarbor, and that's what I decided to base my story on but they also um drove up to darwin and they sort of went melbourne adelaide straight
0: up and there was nothing there it's 1928 and look what they're driving in i mean they weren't in a four-wheel luxury range (laughs) rover
1: they were not and and there were all sorts of great yeah so they they actually did follow obviously telegraph poles but they also followed um riverbeds quite often and one day they were Driving up a, a dried out riverbed, and they had this um, Indigenous fellow appear, um, and he ran alongside them, which might have been a little bit scary at the time. But they they pulled over, and and he said, um, you know, don't drive up here. There's there's headwaters coming. There's been yeah. rain up north, and this is this is all gonna flood.
0: Oh my god! Yeah. So they were
1: just so different to. They had a different attitude to people at the time. They were very grateful to this fellow and thanked him. And, you
0: know. and that's the other thing about the book too and the story too is the sexism that they came up against, oh. you know, which you touch on but you don't harp on about it. But, you know, it's, it's, it was huge. It was a huge thing. Mm-hmm. David and I were talking about the book as well and he was saying, you know, a couple of guys set out, and you know, to tra- trek across wherever they went and they didn't even make it and they died under a tree and yet they're national heroes. <laughs> yeah you know who i'm talking about i mean and then but these two incredible women did this thing and they succeeded yeah and they they so when they when
1: they drove up this dried riverbed they actually drove up to darwin and from darwin they put their italian lecture the car they were driving they put it onto a boat and went to malaysia and then they got another one across to India. And then they drove all the way through. Oh God, all these countries until they arrived in Italy because they wanted to compete in the Monte Carlo Car Rally. <laughs> I was just so fascinated with all the touring that they did, and they finished seventeenth out of one hundred and forty drivers. Wow, that was pretty amazing.
0: True. Yeah, yeah. And I, I so, about- so sorry. So mm-hmm. for your research again, you had to you had to whittle it all down. to this most, you know, exciting one period that's relatable. That's right. And flesh that out.
1: And flesh that out. So it's not easy. I'm not going to um, lie about that. So it takes a bit of thought. You know, you've got to do a lot of walking and open those neural pathways in the brain and try on a few different scenarios. And, you know, of course, it comes while you're in the shower. And I really love to go deep. Because um, quite often I wear hats when I yeah, write. Yeah, yeah, because, literal hats,
0: real hats. Yeah, like Edward Bono hats. hats. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. No, just well. So, so for this one, I had oh, I can't, but I had the the flying cat with the goggles and, <laughs> and the scarf. <laughs> right, and yeah. You got to get into, it, got to get into it. And I was dreaming about these girls and the adventures that they were having. Hmm. So that does come to you. So choose the most exciting part. And there was an incredible description um, from one of the, I think it was Jean Robertson, about uh, scaling these sand dunes and how they were to approach the sand dunes. It was so dangerous what they did. Oh,
0: incredibly dangerous. They really
1: thought about it. They wanted to cross the sand dunes at dawn when there was a bit of a frost, so therefore there was a crust on them and it wouldn't get bogged.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Yeah. yeah, and just how they open the throttle and just went like the clappers straight up. And then, of course, you know, <laughs> what goes up must come down. <laughs> yeah, so that had to be in it. That scene had to be in it. And it's a bit like um, in Drover, Edna Jessup's story, um, there was a um, a stampede scene, or in Australia we call them a rush. Right. So that's what I mean about finding the most exciting,
0: yes. dangerous scary part yeah yeah, yeah
1: wow that, that's sort of the peak of your story there mm. so
0: that's where you're starting to look at the structure
1: yep how i'll start with it. that
0: most dangerous
1: part and then i'll work out the rest after
0: okay mm. but the rest either side of that
1: yes the rest either side and i really ah. like like a
0: so it's not a linear process you know no it, ah interesting
1: it is Mind you, middle grade fiction is different. I have a different process for that. But
0: yeah, we'll talk longer. about that too. Yeah, they're longer. Yeah,
1: but um, I do like a, I do like the beginning to relate to the ending.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That circular, yeah. circle of the story.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So the girls after they they finished racing across Snullabore, I th- I think they did several years of driving, but after that particular race. Um, both their fathers said, that's probably enough now, time to get married.
0: Oh, that's no. enough of this
1: nonsense. And they never drove again. Oh, you're kidding. No. Oh. No, it's pretty sad, isn't it? Because oh, God. That was the expectation of, you know,
0: yeah. women. Eventually they succumbed. Well, they had to.
1: Yeah, they were in their late yeah. 20s by the time sort of that came about. And yeah. One of the fathers said something like, um, it's enough of that nonsense.
0: God, and, yeah. of course, you know, in those days if you're 30 and unmarried, you were considered on the shelf. That's right. A bit of an oddball. Oh, yeah, look, I, I think, God. I mean, Jean,
1: Jean Robertson was a qualified mechanic. She went through yeah. Alice, Alice, is it Alice Anderson? Is that her name? She had the first um, all-female garage in in Melbourne in the yeah. same era and she um, had a mechanic apprenticeships for girls.
0: So she wow. can fix anything.
1: That's that's why they were able to do that journey because any any punctures or any problems with springs and suspension she could repair it. She
0: could repair it. She knew what to do. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. The little <laughs> dog is that a, a flight of your imagination or was that no. true? that actually um, they took the little dog with them? The little dog
1: was was so how I came across this story was I was just um, reading through the state library of Victoria. And they had a blog about pioneering women. And what had happened was the family had donated a um, a photograph album because Jean had a box brownie as well. And she donated this album, or her family did, probably in the 70s, long after the girls had gone. But it was full of 300 black and white photos of all their driving adventures. It was just a treasure
0: trove. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. And the little dog, Barney, I'll actually email you a photo yeah, but this little dog was in every photo. I mean, I had to laugh. Lucia had the dog at one point when they had a breakdown, it had a spanner in its mouth. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if it did that, but yeah, that, that was oh God. dog. God, how good is that?
0: It's so gorgeous. Yeah. I, I just, it should be a film. As oh, has any, have you sold the rights to it? No, not Does anyone yet. come along? They should. This would be such a great film. Hmm. I mean, if, if you t- and it, it also if you took a little bit of poetic license with the, you know, the extra characters and blah 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 blah. But It'd be great. The of it it is so solid, you know, and hmm. and the outcome is so positive and uplifting that none of that has to be tinkered with. It, you just people it a little, little bit. It would be spectacular. Yeah, and look,
1: they were so well known around Melbourne. Yeah, that the um intersection of swanston and flinders street they used to hoon down there in their italian touring car all the time and of course they wore, they had the silk shirts and the cloche hats and there was a very famous policeman there called whistling rufus
0: yeah
1: And he was a scotsman with a big red beard and so forth so he used to stop the traffic and let the girls go through
0: because, of course, in those days there wasn't, wouldn't have been the amount of traffic but, that there is today. There would have been much more of the Wild West.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I think they were. Remarkable. You know, how would you resist? Uh, I haven't seen a, a Lancia Lambda in real life yet, but they were meant to be incredible cars. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And it's, it's really interesting too that they were driving an Italian car. Yeah. Like, I don't
1: know. There's no doubt that the girls were privileged. Yeah. Like they went to private schools. They went to Clyde. And um, their father, one of their fathers, bought them this car. So they were pretty lucky. They were indulged. Both their mothers had passed away when they were young, and their fathers doted on them.
0: Right. Yeah. But, but they, but they, they did something with that privilege. They did and that, something with and that's, Yeah.
1: Yeah. They weren't society girls. No. They, no. They were flapper girls. They yeah. were. Dead. They went off
0: Yeah. And- yeah. Good on them. Yeah,
1: this
0: I agree. Super, super inspiring. I'd love to see a film from it. Just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: We'll see what happens. All here. right.
0: Let me talk about Evie and Rhino now because mm-hmm. um, we are we, uh, from, you know, okay, we've got a novel now. So you've moved into longer form fiction. So yes. how did that come about? How did you feel about that? What was your process? I've got a million questions. Yeah. Okay.
1: So what happened was I um, was an awarded a um, May Gibbs um, Creative Time Fellowship mm-hmm. and I chose to go to Adelaide and... I wanted to have a go at something a little bit longer, but I didn't quite have the, I mean, every every woman knows this, sometimes with family, it's very hard being interrupted in your projects all the time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really want to start or commit to something until, A, I knew what I was doing, and I just wanted to give my chan- myself a chance to get a lot of it down. So on this fellowship, I had quite a few picture books planned out, and Drover was one of those. And then I wanted to use the time to write the first draft of
0: Evie and Rhino, which I did. But I did so how long bit. how long was that that uh May Gibbs yeah. scholarship? Well, uh, you can do it, just you
1: know, um, women with families and so forth. I did mine in two two-week 2 blocks, which is two great. two-week
0: blocks, right. Yep.
1: Yep. So I did a bit of sort of prep work. I tried to um Oh God, plotted out, which I sort of had this loose structure. And I was writing a lot about um the location. I wanted it set in a particular house in a particular place. I knew all of that. And I knew I wanted it to be windy, bleak, isolated, all that sort of thing. Um, and I knew that I wanted her to, you know, find things on the beach and um you know, have that sort of wonder of the world around her and she loved birds and her grandfather was a once famous ornithologist. Like I had all of that and I put mood boards together Mm -hmm. and I collect usually black and white photos of, you know, all of those features. And I spent quite a lot of time on windswept trees, which sounds crazy. Yeah, yeah. But when you have a mood board and you know, sometimes, well, we have to put our work down just to give it a rest, to let it percolate. But when you need to go back to it, I always found mood boards quite good to help me get back into that place. And then I'd reread where I was at and then get back into it again.
0: Wow, what a fantastic, beautiful tip, especially for those of us who are visual. Well, that's it. And I am too. But I
1: also quite often have a soundtrack too. i mm-hmm, oh, mm-hmm. something on Spotify. Yep,
0: yep. yep.
1: I know it's not unusual. A lot of writers do that. No,
0: no, but it still needs to be said over and over again because people do forget these things. Yeah, it's about And and often people hear these things and think they're just nice things that an author's saying, but they're not. They're actually really useful, powerful um, devices. It's to take
1: you back to that place. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe I did faff around a little bit. Um, I mean, you know, writing's scary Mm. sometimes... You know, I do faff around a bit before I get into it because I'm building my courage to do it.
0: Yeah. So yeah. I
1: wrote the first draft of Evie and Rhino in Adelaide mm-hmm. and I did 20,000 words. Um And then I think it sat for, I'm going to say it sat for nearly 18 months because I didn't know where to take it and I,
0: I... With this, when you say you didn't know where to take it, you didn't know where to take the story or you didn't know where to...
1: I was very happy with the beginning, which was right. a super... Yeah. It's always the beginning. Um, the ending was... No, wasn't too sure about the ending. I I won't give that away. But, you know, the middle was pretty flat too. So I sort of, oh, you know, I muddled around a bit and... Um, I couldn't decide sort of what happened in the middle. And I I went on a writer's retreat to Dalesford. Mm -hmm. Um, Alison Arnold used to have a business, she probably still does actually, but it's called Wordhouse. With Kath Crowley? Yes. Yep, yep, yep. And they did a writer's retreat in Dalesford for?
0: Was Emma on that one with you?
1: Yes. Yes, that's where I first met Emma.
0: Um, I remember it. For some reason I remember it.
1: Well, it's beautiful because we stayed at the lake house. Yeah, I know, right? Whole, <laughs> it was such a treat. Yeah. What what was a real treat was walking around Lake Dalesford every morning with other writers talking about
0: things. Yeah, right. Beautiful. And I just
1: think, I you know, I just think I was trying too hard. I knew that Evie and I had legs, that the concept was really good, but you know, it was it was lacking in content. The narrative arc wasn't quite right. And I got so cross with myself. I just think I was really trying too hard, and maybe that's a bit like a block anyway.
0: Yeah.
1: But I can remember doing a lot of, a lot of walks, talking to, to um, Alice and Ellie and Kath and, you know, other friends while we were walking, and um, it was such an uplifting week that we all spent together that I think I looked at that manuscript with different eyes, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden that solution, the problem in the middle came to me. And obviously, Evie didn't want to be parted from Rhino. And, you know, your child character has to be the hero. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it was so obvious that really she had to try and hide him. That was pretty obvious. But that took a while to come. So once I did that and I smashed out another draft at 40,000 words, like I really worked hard on it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at the time um, I was uh, I was using... Um, using that sounds terrible. The services of uh Sue Whiting as a, a freelancer. Yeah, yeah. So um Sue had a look at it for me and she absolutely loved it. And just her discerning eye mm. just clicked a couple of things, you know, getting that second opinion clicked a couple of things in place. Because I, oh, I don't helpful. do I don't do critique groups. No. I'm not, no I'm not in a writing group. I had no. a very bad experience.
0: No critique groups are scared the shit out of me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I no, most- no shade no shade i know some people really benefit from them but they've no never, i they've don't
1: never ever, no like no. i i am still scarred from the first one yeah though. it can yeah. really knock your confidence it can go
0: very pear-shaped very very easily
1: yeah and mine didn't really work out uh for me so that's why i've always paid somebody that i trust mm. to go over that first draft and give me some sound
0: advice and yeah
1: I always use a freelance editor now for my picture books and
0: other things that I write before before you submit them. Sorry, sorry. yeah, that's right. Yeah, no,
1: no, you're right, and it has to be. In my eyes, it has to be absolutely perfect, absolutely perfect before I send it to anyone. Mm -hmm. I know it sounds a bit OCD.
0: No, I don't think. I think it's that. I think if I could get everybody to do that, I would be a happy camper.
1: Yeah. So you've I got, got to take now. it
0: seriously.
1: It's got to, well, sometimes you only and get one
0: shot at it. it that's, that's what I'm saying. Yes. I don't
1: want to reread something no. that
0: you've it before. No, no.
1: So, you know, I work really hard on that now. And I do give my work rest time. And some people don't do that. You've got to let it rest. Mm-hmm. So then you can look at it with fresh eyes, you know, in a different way. So, Evie and Rhino, I just sort of lucked out a bit there and really, um, that was during 2020, the first lockdown, when I had that time to really put into it.
0: So and so that second draft was 40,000 words. How how many words does it come in at, at the end? About 42. Is it? Okay. Yeah. It seems longer than that. No. So yeah. so what happened? Oh, yeah. I'm gonna
1: say I would have done 30 or 40 drafts of Evie and Rhino. Yeah.
0: Like that yeah. many. Yeah.
1: So by the time I sent it to Sue, would have had it 15, but I was still sort of faffing around in that middle bit. Yeah.
0: The and dreaded I, a dreaded abyss in the middle.
1: Yeah. Oh, I was in, I love that analogy. Yeah. I was in the abyss. Yeah. Like it yeah. That, the first time I listened to your podcast about that, I cried.
0: <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm so
1: sorry, I just gotta quickly let my dog in. Yeah,
0: no. Let I, I do to do to do do, do, do do, here's my music. <laughs> My, my my, I, I just like so, some music.
1: <laughs> if I don't, he'll start barking.
0: Okay, some yeah. interview. Uh, some, so, um,
1: Evie and Rhino. Um, yeah. So, you know, as bad as all those lockdowns were, it gave me the chance to rewrite. Um, using Sue's input, mm-hmm. and it really it turned the corner then. And at the time, Lindsay Knight was um she was the director of Walker Books. And I had three contracts for picture books there, and she said to me, what else have you got? And I said, I've got a middle grade fiction. I'm not too sure where it's at. Um, but I heard back from her very quickly about that. So. Yeah,
0: because it, it would have been in such good shape when you did show it to her. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mind yeah. you,
1: the edit, the edit. Then it is, begins. Is it? Yes. i was <laughs> so proud of it, you know. I thought it is in good shape. But what it is, is, you know, editors, I've got to say I'm Teflon, I'm never offended by anything. So when when um, I worked with Christina Pagliaro, when she came back and um, wanted a few changes with Evie and Rhino, I nearly died when I saw the track changes. But then when I read it in, you know, 24-hour rule, I thought, oh, my God, she's right. So originally Evie and Rhino was bookended um, from the beginning to the end with Rhino's point of view. That's all. And she said to me how much she loved Rhino's thoughts and how he felt about the world that she wanted it all the way through the book. So, okay, yeah Yeah, which yep. terrified me. Yeah. But I did it and um, I think I added 16, um, you know, little bits of Rhino. So when you read Evie and Rhino, you'll see there's a little dinkus um, in the chapters when the point of view switches. Yeah. The rhinoceros back to Evie. It's very clever design. Yeah, it's beautiful. And so Astrid Hicks. Oh, she did a beautiful job. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's how. See, Evie- but that,
0: that's what I mean. That's also about that. You know, once you get a and you, know, you get an editor to help you dust it up and get it as best you can, and then it goes into you know, hopefully it gets accepted, and then it goes into this next really big, big, really deep. Nitty gritty oh, process. That is fantastic. a very intimate relationship that you have with that editor, and yeah. that's when you get really start to bring the best out. That you you Absolutely. just can't see, even yeah. an editor can't see those things at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it yeah. was a
1: fantastic process, and and I will never fear it again because no. it was. I learned so much, and the book is so much better than it was. But it wasn't that scary for me because I knew those characters so well anyway and I think, you know, it's this resistance sometimes to write about certain things that hurt you. You know, I don't don't want to cry now, but there were certain things in my childhood that I didn't want to go back over because it hurt. Yeah. Loss of an animal. Yeah. Having something taken away from you. So for Evie to have Rhino taken away from her... God. Like that that was um easy for me to write because I knew it. I'd been there. I'd had a pony taken away from me inside yeah. from underneath yeah. me. You know, and God, it was like tearing my arm off. So yeah, you know, I cried writing those chapters. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think I've done a couple of um book clubs, like adult book clubs, because even and Rhino's nine plus. I've had a lot of adult um readers email me about it and I, I've done a couple of book clubs and all the ladies are really traumatized by that. Mm.
0: Yeah. That yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's an incredibly tender book. It's it's I think it's a really important book as well. It just showcases attitudes towards animals so beautifully and so tenderly. Um, but yeah, I, I got when I started reading it, I started feeling scared because I thought because of that thing, that relationship yes, with the animals yeah. And, 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 yeah. and mm-hmm. and But also your way of phrasing it too, just the voice and the, and the language that you use and the insights that you have, the insights that you share, just it, just the way you describe those animals on that boat. Yeah. I was like, oh, God. I know, was <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm, this is just, yeah, yeah
1: it's a very,
0: very moving book. It's beautiful. Oh, it's a really have- important book.
1: I have children at um, school visits say to me, um, this is extraordinary, I'm going to say city kids, country kids are quite a different kettle of fish, that an animal wouldn't respond that way or you can't have friendships with animals.
0: Which
1: mm. Mm. Um, I feel so God. sorry for children that believe that. But I have to admit, when I first met my mother-in-law, and I love her,
0: yeah,
1: but she made a comment once, I, I might have been, yeah, we were talking about my childhood with the foals being born and um, I made a comment that I would never forget the sound that the mares made when they were having contractions and before they gave birth. And she said, yeah, but animals don't feel pain. And I'm like, excuse me? Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, that guttural deep groaning. Yeah, yeah. Mare made before she gave birth. I'm like, yeah. So some people do have those ideas.
0: Mm. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, our our society has trained us on the whole to shut down from that connection with nature as if we're not part of it. Yeah. And also to treat animals as products. That's right. It's disgusting, isn't it? It's gross. Yeah. So So I can remember. That's why this book works on so many levels.
1: Yeah. Look, on the farm, I mean, you do have to be practical because life is tough. Yeah. And we had a lot of pets, and you know, I used to cry when we'd lose one, and so forth. And, I, and my dad said to me, he said, you know, have live pets, have dead pets. This is the cycle of life.
0: Mm-hmm. You're not mm-hmm. going to be able to stop that. Yeah, so
1: love, love them while you've got them. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because
1: yeah. yeah. I, I actually do know some people who have had dogs, and they've they've lost a dog. They will, and they declare they will never have another pet.
0: Because they've been so traumatized by losing the dog. Yeah, yeah. And so many people who lose a pet also come out and say, I never expected it to hurt so much. Mm. Why wouldn't it? Really? I mean, when you think about it. <laughs> correct.
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, look, yeah. But,
0: yeah, we we do try to disconnect ourselves. But yeah, but also this whole thing about children and animals, it's such so important. And I have I've over the years harped on about it a lot because kids do connect very profoundly with animals and animal stories are very important to them. And I remember my, uh, myself as a kid, you know, like you, there weren't that many books around anyway, even if I had lived in a bookish house. But one of the books that really moved me as a child was My Side of the Mountain. Um, I don't know if you ever read that one, but it was a, it's American. I forget who wrote it, Gene, George, somebody rather. Um, but it's about a kid, and I think it's set during the Depression, who runs away from home and lives in a hollow tree you know, and when I reread it as an adult, I thought, God, this is really dry. It's almost like a science text. But as a kid, I just adored it, you know, and he he befriended a falcon and the falcon helped him hunt. And so it was in your face, like he had to, you know, do things to survive and all that sort of stuff. But it was that connection with the wilderness and the animals. And it just, it really moved me. And it sounds
1: beautiful. Yeah.
0: And this sort of book is is, is like that. And I also love all the scientific references in it. I love the way that you use um, different text types in it as well. You know, the telegrams would come and and then there'd be, and, you know, the, the illustrations as well. Yeah,
1: look, I, I really wanted to break it up for younger readers.
0: Yeah. Make
1: it interesting for them, not too much, you know, um, slabs of text. We, yeah, I really wanted it broken up. And it does have a lot of illustrations through it.
0: But the and there's also illustrations like oh look, it's my book has just fallen on where you had the one about the parrot, the um orange bell- bellied pa- parrot. Yeah. You know, Isn't that's that a, beautiful. That's a, like a scientific illustration. And yeah, again, it's this is where you've, Yeah, you've you've married all your skills really beautifully, beautifully in this book. You've bought us a, a fiction account of a of a historical event and you've woven all that fact into it. Mm. So yeah, look again, it was
1: great to write like I I was you know just so engaged in it. Um and and obviously that shipwreck did happen.
0: Yeah.
1: There, there was a the steamship Bankura in 1881 did sail out from Calcutta. It was it was quite the trade to bring out exotic zoo exotic animals. It just made me sick and I you know this story about the rhinoceros wasn't the only one. No. There was Two other um, stories, and I always cross-reference things with Trove, Mm -hmm. you know, you you often get um, some more information um, out of the newspapers, but there was, oh, God, another elephant was brought out from Thailand or something, and he got caught in in a Gulf War storm in Bass Strait, and the description of the passengers was that the um, elephant wound its trunk around the main mast of the ship and just held on during because they were housed in crates on top of on the deck yeah the description was just awful and then there was some there were two little tiger cubs that um i guess it was india and um every morning i don't know one of the crew would come out with a icy bucket of cold water and slop it over the the cubs just to sort of I think he thought he was cleaning their crate. But, of course, they froze to death. They they died of exposure
0: because they were wet all the time. Oh, that's just hard. Yeah, think, but, yeah these
1: accounts were just, yeah. they were, you know, too many to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it would have been a tough book to research and a tough book to write.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I mean, kudos maybe, to you.
1: Maybe, you know, kids will think a little bit differently about zoos mm. too. Mm. I hope so
0: absolutely yeah um, yeah, yeah like this some. needs to be on all the curriculums that's my opinion <laughs> oh, <thank> you. <laughs> <laughs> if you want it i'll give it um also i also thought edm rhino is a good film as well it's very filmic it's sort of life of paish you know like it's just uh it's, it's very yeah. different it's very different too yeah well
1: i, I don't know it, it went out into the uk last year as well mm-hmm. right into the uk um and I'm with Claire Forster at Curtis Brown. We'll okay, see what yeah, yeah, we'll
0: see what yeah. Happens. I see in the background there. You've got uh, is it two different covers for EBM Rhino, different colours?
1: Yeah. So they so one's the UK. So this is
0: our version. Oh, which is what I've got—the darker one, right? And then okay.
1: The UK version, so they thought that the front cover was too dark.
0: Okay, so they've used exactly the same yellow, they've ju- and and typeface. They've just changed the. Color. No,
1: they, they changed the typeface too. They thought it was. Too oh, they hard. did too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they they thought it was too hard to read. Oh
0: right.
1: Yeah. But I was really thrilled it went to the UK because. Oh, you must have been. I love animals. Yeah. Oh God! Yeah. And and. You
0: know, they've got their chickens inside. Yeah, and their dogs. Like we were, you know, we were there last year and the, the thing I loved the most was there were dogs in every restaurant and cafe. I agree. It yeah, didn't it matter nice. how high end the restaurant was, <laughs> the dogs came in. It was, right. and same in Scotland. It was beautiful. I just yeah. loved that. Yeah. So we we'll yeah. well, Where are we? We're 11.30. We've got so much to talk about. But I did want to ask you also, of course, where to from here? What are you working on now? Okay, well,
1: you know, I have had editors suggest to me that um, I can't rely on you know non-fiction forever, and that I should be diversifying a bit. Right. I do think that peak's past a bit. I do. The non-fiction
0: um, peak. Yeah, I do. Yeah,
1: yeah. The bios. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Like I've had last year, I
1: had six rejections for mm-hmm. very similar stories. Mm-hmm. So I've got the hint. Right. And um, but I can't stop writing about them because I really love them. So,
0: but this is really interesting for everyone to hear that that even yep. though you've got eleven books out there and you're you mm-hmm. know really on your way, you've had six rejections. Is it like it's a yep. tough and
1: game? One made me cry because I'd worked on it for three, three years and I really thought it was a bit of shoe in. But we've, there's been big changes at Walker Books, so mm-hmm. you've got different people looking at your work, and um, you know they're wanting different things. So I. Um, experimental I see myself as multi-genre. I will always write you know picture books, junior fiction, middle grade fiction. Um, I'm still writing short stories and poetry a, as well mm-hmm. um, you know amongst the rejections you don't want that to take away the joy of writing
0: so mm-hmm. um, do you write anything that you, you know your short stories and poetry is that just more for you rather than for publication? Or?
1: Definitely. The the short stories, yeah. Look, I, I think I will dabble a little bit in adult fiction at some point. Mm-hmm. Um poetry. Sometimes I send things into the school magazine. Sometimes it's just for me. Depends what it is. Yeah. I write a lot about birds. Um and I write a lot about um the perspective or the bird's view of the world. Like I am the bird. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's quite funny. Mm-hmm. My husband yeah. who is a mathematician he reads that and goes what the hell was that
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm totally with you on that like
1: why not <laughs> which is fine um but look i'm still writing my um you know my bias and my non-fiction stories because i love them mm-hmm. uh, i am i have written a um junior fiction series that's just sort of been getting down to the wire on that one and I have a new middle grade fiction novel out next year. Oh right. And yeah, it's it's quite different to Evie and Rhino in that um, I didn't mean this to happen, but <laughs> it, it's started on a historical basis. Um, so there's a river that flows through Port Ferry called the Moyne River. and it has a um, they have training walls and breakwaters. And they were built in 1880, and there's a a story about a diver called uh, Isaac Smale who had a fight with a giant octopus while he was building the wall. Hmm. And it was quite a, I think, you know, the divers with the grill that they used to wear, the old diving suits. So he fought with this giant, it's a great southern octopus, and he fought with it for 15 minutes under the water and it released its ink and he had to sever some arms to get himself free, like he nearly... It nearly killed him. He'd ran out of oxygen. So this story was written up uh, in the Argus at the time in Melbourne and and it made newspapers um, in Britain and London and so forth. And it was also written up in a couple of boys' own annuals. They love (laughs) You know, they love those um, however many leagues under the sea. Yeah, The giant krakens and things like that. Yeah, oh, krakens are Yeah, I love this news article. Yeah, wow. So fantastic. And what I found out was that this family, the Smale family, previously lived in our little whalers cottage in Port Ferry. Like there's weird connections. Oh mm. my God. Weird connections. Because so I was doing a trove search and it actually came something came up about um it was a funeral notice on the passing of his wife. And we, it had the address. So God. that was weird. Wow. So <clears throat> My story is about a little girl called Pippi Cocklebitty who's <laughs> trying trying to save a giant octopus. It's called Keeper of the Octopus.
0: Oh, love the title.
1: And thank you. And it's it's sort of about it's quite um Gaelic in its origins because Porphyry is a very old place. Yes, yes, yes. And um, you know, it's windy, isolated once again. I love those places. And uh it's an a it's a seafaring rollicking story with lots of aharas and you scurvy dog that <laughs> yeah and i have actually have a house brownie in there there's a there's a ponky doodle in there who's yep. he's a real rascal he picks his nose a lot too so yeah. that's the next book and it's that's almost the, the same book. size as evie and rhino and i pretty much used the same process had problems in the middle once again but i was less fearful this time and just muddled my way through it and once I hit upon sort of the right arc, it just it just took off. So
0: So is that coming out with Walker as well? It is. Yeah. And
1: that'll I think it'll be out sort of around October next year. Oh, and yes. I have another another picture book out in April that's a Cobb and Co. adventure story.
0: Yeah.
1: With bush ranges and flooding and boggings and all those sorts of things. Oh wow.
0: Brilliant. But that'll sort
1: of be the last in that series.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I yeah.
1: Unless I can come up with the goods. We'll yeah. see.
0: Yeah. The last for now because, of course, things cycle in the publishing oh, they do. industry. You know, trends come and go and then come again.
1: But not only that, we evolve as writers too. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not afraid of that. Um, my my sort of reading for pleasure is, is historical books, so um, can you hear that noise next door?
0: No, can't hear Thank anything God. except you. <laughs> There's something going on, is
1: it? Somebody's angle grinding something. Oh,
0: it's just typical, isn't it? Usually when I do an interview, somebody whips out a snipper. It's just every time.
1: It always happens, but the dog yeah. hasn't barked. I'm grateful for that. No, he's been great. Yeah, he has. Yeah. So, um, yeah, look, I, I like to write for three, four hours every morning, and I have a bit of a routine. I like beautiful candles and um, I like to pick flowers to go on my desk and I like music and I, yeah, it's so I have three, a really beautiful, beautiful
0: creative life, yeah. Yeah, three to four hours every morning, so that's Monday to Friday? No, seven days a week. Seven days a week. Wow.
1: Yeah, so my husband gets cross with me, but the fact of the matter is I, you know, he's like, you should do something to relax. I'm like, I am.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I always remember there's an anecdote I often share about that Morris Gleitzman shared once. So he said, uh, you can always tell the writer on holiday, I'm using air air quotes if you're on the podcast, um, because they're the ones hanging limply from the bungee rope thinking, is this this over yet? Can I go back to my writing? Because that's where I'm happy. I don't want to be doing all this other having fun. Are we having fun yet?
1: Yeah, that's right. It's very strange. So, you know, everything sort of I do when I'm on holiday relates to something I'm working on. <laughs> yeah. So Ian doesn't always know that and yeah. he sometimes says, is this research or are we just having fun? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, we're having
0: both. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It can be both, yeah. yeah. No, this
1: that, has been, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say a big thank you to you because I think that Duck Pond has helped me sort of, Find my creative life. life, Yeah. And find, you know, peace and happiness in that. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not hard, it is.
0: No. You've been so, it's been so inspiring listening to you. Like it really has. And, oh, and again, I, I, just, I just love the convoluted journey that you've been on, but the way that you've you, all the skills that you developed in your previous life have been yep. transfer, transferable skills that have served yeah. you really well in so many ways and will continue to do so as you mutate and change and experiment yeah. and go into other genres and formats. And, um, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's been super inspiring. Oh, I know I know people much. are going to love this conversation and take some notes from it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's gorgeous. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Jen. Oh, thank you for coming along. It's been wonderful. And your your, your work is just, it's beautiful. It's oh, beautiful. Thank you. Thank so, you very much. Uh, we look forward to this year and the, the okay. two new books coming out. Um, we'll all be there with bells on to help you celebrate. Oh,
1: well, thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, I'll, I'll let... The duckies know whenever. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if having a book launch or not. It's one of those things. Oh, have a
0: launch, have a launch, have a launch. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, seriously, since COVID, you know, and and all those choices got ripped away, I just think when you do something wonderful and something wonderful like this happens, you have to acknowledge it in real life. Yeah, oh, I'll get
1: myself organised. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I'll bake some cakes for you. <laughs> oh, sounds great. Anything to help you. Yeah. Is there any parting words you'd like to share with any of our aspiring authors too? Um, not to put you in a corner and say be no, profound. No, <laughs> no, not at all. But
1: look, I, I think um, you know, persistence is a word that just gets tossed around. Um, but I think it's it's valuable. But it's also you know, when I was in the wilderness, uh, one of the reasons I, I sort of broke through with Fabish as a story was that I just looked at my work with the more critical eye. I just thought, why am I not getting published? Why? I've had a couple. Well, So what's wrong now? And I think the feedback I was getting was that my stories just weren't quite unique enough. You know, they weren't quite. So so you've really got to settle on a concept that's strong and then deliver on that concept so tricky business but um you know don't be afraid to use mentor texts
0: what do you look mean by that
1: a, well you know look at um other good books that you love and why are they why are they good yeah. Have a really good think about that and maybe how you could apply similar principles it's not plagiarism it's analy- you know analysis and the other thing is I heard some advice the other day, and I'm going to um, repeat it because I thought it was gold, through I think it might have been um, Valerie Koo. So that's mm-hmm. the Australian Writers' Centre. Mm-hmm. There's a girl in there, Nat, who gives advice, and she said, I've got it stuck on my computer, in late, out early. So when you're writing nonfiction, you know, you don't need to have all the guff early. Remember how I was yeah, yeah, the most exciting stuff? You know, that's what you should be focusing on. And then out early is you don't need all the other guff at the end.
0: Yeah. In
1: early. It's the same with your scene writing in. In fiction. Know, yeah. In middle grade fiction. Yep. Don't faff around. Get to it. Yep. Get to it because otherwise you'll lose kids and we don't want that.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you can you can faff around until you find the, and then just oh. cut that. That's when you murder your darlings yes
1: yeah yeah look we've yeah. all got to write ourselves into projects yes yes it's only time that will give you that perspective yes and then you just put a red line through it you don't need it yeah because you've written yourself in that's yeah. right yeah that's good advice. that's
0: brilliant that's great advice <laughs> Narada, this has been such a such a pleasure thank you so uh, much
1: thank you jen and it was well, always a dream to come on here so no, it's been wonderful really
0: it's been all okay. right we'll see you again soon we'll see you later in the year Okay. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bye. If you want more ducky goodness, pop over to the website, girlandduck.com, or you can find me on Instagram at Jen Estora. That's J-E-N-E-S-T-O-R-E-R.